Father in heaven, uh, we are, are glad and we rejoice that it is by grace we are saved, amazing grace. And Lord, it is because of that grace, that amazing grace, um, you giving us gifts we don't deserve, that we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word now as it is proclaimed and heralded and announced as we sit and listen. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, uh, that, we would, um, that we would see Christ and that our eyes would be fixed on him and that you would use this to lead us home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33. We're going to read Isaiah 33 and 34 and 35 today. Uh, three chapters and uh, kind of in four parts. So we begin kind of like a summary or an introduction, 33, 1 to 12. And then after that, what follows is basically two announcements, two proclamations, two, uh, two heralding messages. And they both start with the same phrase, this idea of hear everyone, everybody hear. And then at the end, it, it ends with this picture of the Lord leading people into his city. So we start with this introduction, this summary, and then two major proclamations. One positive, one negative, and then in the end, we have this picture of the Lord leading his people home into his city. So this is Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33, 34, and 35. We would summarize it in these ways. What you, look, what, what you basically see is this. You, you, see, you see two groups of people. Two groups of people who have heard rumors that the king of the earth will return one day. Two groups of people who have heard rumors that the king of the earth, in fact, the king of Israel, who is the king of the earth, he will return one day. And he will return in all his majesty and splendor, keeping his promises. And you have two groups who hear these messages. They've heard this rumor. You have one group that is very eager for this to be true, but is kind of, is hoping that it's true, but is kind of doubting that it's true. But they would really love, they really want this to happen. And they're waiting, and it's a long time. And so they're, because they're waiting for it, they're thinking maybe, maybe it won't happen. But then you have another group of people who have also heard this rumor. And they kind of know deep down in their souls that the Lord, the King of the universe, God is coming back. They've heard this rumor, and they are hoping that it's not true. And because it's taking so long, they kind of feel like they've gotten away with their sin. And so to these two groups of people, the Lord gives two proclamations, two announcements. He sends a, a herald or a messenger saying, hear ye, everyone. And we're about to hear these two proclamations. But let's look at the summary first. Isaiah 33, we'll read the first 12 verses first. Ah, you destroyer, you yourself who have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you finish betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. 
be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of, our, of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lay, lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. And there is no regard for man. The land mourns and languages. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be lifted up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Thus far, God's word. So we have here what we're going to call our first point, which is a summary of history. It's either salvation by the Lord or destruction by the Lord. The Lord's powerful action will seem to be a long time in coming. We have this picture here near the end where it's just talking about this, this disaster of a situation where it looks like God's justice is being ignored. He's the king, but look at people are breaking his laws. He's the king of love. People are hating each other. What is going on? And, and the Lord's powerful action will seem like a long time coming. And on the one hand, you have God's enemies who are thinking that they've gotten away with murder, right? You see that in verse 1. Ah, you destroyer, you, you yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. You have this sense that the enemies of God are thinking they've gotten away with it. They've heard, maybe they've felt in their hearts, they know that there's a God that they've sinned against, but they're thinking, well, maybe I did get away with it. Probably what Isaiah has mostly in mind is the king of Assyria who has, uh, who has been very wicked and he has, he has spread his wickedness around the earth and he has really been a, 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 very, a big pain, and I don't mean that in a, an annoying sense, but he has inflicted a lot of pain on God's people. Not, on God, not only on God's people, but on the entire earth. They will have lots of time to think that this won't happen. Even to gloat, to be able to think, I've gotten away with it. You can think of somebody who has maybe committed a bank robbery, you know, and, and they're at first, the first few weeks afterwards, they're thinking maybe, oh, it's coming any day, any knock at the door, they're sure... They're sure it's the police. We've been found out. And, and as time goes on, they're thinking, well, maybe I got away with this. And then after a little while, they start actually just maybe telling a few people, right? Let's enjoy the moment by bragging about it. And then as time goes on, as years go on, they get maybe more and more bold and they tell more and more people, assuming I've gotten away with it. And this is the picture that God has <clears throat> of, <clears throat> of the rebellious world. They've heard these rumors and in their hearts, they know there's a God in creation, you can see that there's a creator who judges everything and who's a good God who loves righteousness and hates sin. And maybe their conscience has sort of weighed on them and thinking, maybe I have sinned, but they've gotten away with it. So they're thinking it's not coming. So that's the first group. But then the other, we have the other group of people who are going to have a lot. Uh, they're God's people who will have, have a lot of time to walk by faith, waiting for the promises of God to happen, to, to come true. We see this in verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait 
for you, and they're calling out to God as they wait. And in this time, they are crushed. We see that their heroes and their envoys both fail. You see this. And and what does he mean by the heroes? Verse 7, their heroes cry in the street. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. Heroes would be like mighty men, these warriors, like trying to establish peace by the sword. Maybe we can just fight off the enemy and we can protect the people of God. We can have some sort of peace and righteousness and enjoy goodness on the earth. And that's failed, though. The sword isn't working to do that. And then you have the envoys, which would be the people who are trying to do this by diplomatic means. Maybe if we can strike a deal, we could keep the, keep the enemy from hurting us. But that's just, it's just not working. It's all come to nothing. You have rulers, covenants broken by selfish kings. You see that in verse 9. Covenants are broken. This is having to do with the fact that a leader should be leading on behalf of the people, should be taking care of the people, using his power for the good of his people. But this isn't happening. They're leading selfishly. They're leading for their own good and not for the good of the people. And you see this has an impact. He's talking poetically, the land, the whole land. You see that this is this has affected everything as far as the eye can see. It's not just you individually, but it's just the place where you live. He actually mentions... Four cities that kind of represent how this impacts the world as we wait. First one would be Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its, its strength, the, the strength even of its trees, and it was just this immovable permanence and strength. And, and you, wanted, you wanted a house made of something from Lebanon. There's this strength, but that's wasted. There's nothing secure. There's no feeling of security anywhere in the land. They're always worried about when the thing that you enjoy, when it will break or be stolen or it will rot or you'll lose it because of some financial issue. And then Sharon. What was Sharon known for? It was known for the beauty of its flowers, natural beauty. And even that is kind of destroyed and and wrecked. And then Bashan and Carmel, well, they were fertile farmland. And so what they would have been known for is is, is the, the land producing food to take care of the people. Anyways, you put all these three together and you see that sin has affected everything. The people, the world, and it's a place where the people on it who know the Lord particularly are crying out for God to return. Please restore these things and they will wait for him. And both the people of the Lord And the enemies of God, they'll have a lot of time to be tempted to believe that he will not come. There'll be a lot of time for them to be tempted tempted to believe that the Lord will not come. But he will come. We see this in verse 5 and verse 10. The Lord is exalted in verse 10, in verse 5. And then in, in verse 10, it says, now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. He will return. He will exalt himself. He will lift himself up. But do you you notice it says why he does this? Verse verse 5, see this. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. Well, what is this saying? It means that that's his rightful place, the place that he belongs. When When the Bible talks about the Lord being exalted, it's not like this really humble, insignificant person who... People are just going to lift him up to a place that he, he's never been and he doesn't belong. He needs people to exalt him. That's not what the Bible's saying. 
They're saying he actually will be seen in the rightful place. When we say the Lord is to be exalted because he dwells on high, we're saying that's the place he belongs. This is a place that he deserves. It is his rightful place to be seen as the king of the universe, the God of all things, the creator and sustainer, the judge of all things. He's not gaining the top. It is his rightful place. In fact, it is his rightful place, which means that everything is out of order until he is exalted and everybody recognizes him as a king. It is actually bad for everything for him not to have to be seen in his rightful place. So he's going to lift himself up. He's going to, he's going to rise. He's going to be exalted because that's the place where he naturally belongs and deserves, right? That's his rightful place because he dwells on high. But he's also going to lift other people up. He's going to lift other people up, the people who are crying out for him to return, and not because it's their rightful place. He's going to lift them up because of grace. Where do you see this in the text? Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. What is that saying? That's saying this is the opposite of why God will be exalted. He's exalted because he deserves it. This is a place he rightfully deserves. But the people of God who are calling for him to, to return and take care of them, they're saying be Gracious. And what does grace mean? Grace means getting something you do not deserve. Grace means be exalted to a place that's not rightfully yours. You are being treated by God in a good way, in a way that is not respective of what you deserve. In fact, it's contrary to what you deserve. And the Lord, he says, is, is their arm. The Lord is their arm. When the Bible talks about God's arm, he doesn't have arm, he doesn't have body parts. But what is it meaning here? It's talking poetically about him personally acting. Personally acting for the good of his people. Not just some powerful force in the universe, but personally acting. Think of a father stretching out his arm to grab a child who's falling off of a cliff. He's personally acting, and this is how God acts He's going, to, he's going to lift some people up by grace, right? But he's also going to bring others low. He's going to bring others low. And we see this in, in verses 3 and 4. We have this picture of, of, God, of, of God condemning people and, and bringing those people who had lifted themselves up and were hoping he wouldn't return and thinking they got away with, with rebellion against him. And their judgment's going to look like a whole bunch of bugs swarming. The good thing about being attacked by a bear is that you can see that bear and you can, if, there, if there's a place of safety to hide, you can maybe get there. I'm not the expert on that. Ask somebody else about how to hide from a bear. But it's a lot different than bug swarming. And this is the picture that, that God has. There's no hiding. Those people who are living in rebellion and who are looking, are making, are, are hoping that God doesn't return, there's, there's no hiding. There's nothing for them to hide behind. You can't hide behind a wall or a tree to get away from bugs. You notice he says that they give birth to stubble. What does that mean? Everything that you worked for to gain, if you're an enemy of God, everything that you worked for to gain, it will count for nothing. It will have accomplished nothing. And so you have here this summary. There's really only two options. 
There's only two options when the Lord returns. Either you're going to be saved by him or you will be judged and consumed by him. And the people who are saved by him are saved by grace. They don't deserve it. But the people who are judged, God will only give what is just and they will be judged because they deserve it for their sin. And so in that middle of that waiting, there's a proclamation that goes out, a double proclamation. And the first proclamation is in verse 13. And also there's another one in, in chapter 34, verse 1. And both of them, have, they start with this uh, here, those who are near and far, draw near. There's this, there's this picture of a herald coming to a town and saying, hear ye, hear ye. And then waits for a bit as everybody gathers. And then as the people now have gathered, he gives this proclamation, this message. And he's telling them of the, com- the, the coming of the king, the, the Lord's justice is coming. The first installment is going to be the destruction of Assyria. And the Lord kept that promise. As the Lord promised to destroy Assyria, you can, keep, you, you can count on the fact that he'll keep his promise to come again. So let's look at that first, that first proclamation. We'll see this in chapter 33, verse 13 to 24. 33, 20, or 13 to 24. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Who despises the gain of oppressions. Who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. Who stops his ear from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water be sure, will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches far. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will no more see the insolent, you will see no more the insolent people. The people of an obscure speech you can't comprehend, stammering in a tongue you can't understand. Behold Zion, the city of your of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, <clears throat> an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Thus far, God's word. So here's this proclamation over the waiting people. And it's a worldwide proclamation. Did you see that? Who are far off, who are near. It's a worldwide proclamation. And the first thing it says is to acknowledge the might of God. Not make God mighty, but just acknowledge what is always true. You can see this in creation that God is mighty. This is natural for us to know this 
that God is the creator of the universe and that he is almighty, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he's the judge. And, and so there's this invitation, acknowledge this, see this. What you have been sort of pushing off and suppressing and entertaining yourself so much that you're not thinking about, acknowledge this, this is true, see his might. Now how is this responded to by these, this first group of people? Well, you see that they're terrified. They see their sin. They see their sin in light of God's holiness, and they are undone. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the uh, the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And they see, they see the glory of God. They hear that proclamation, and they're thinking, but I'm a sinner. But I'm full of sin. We're all full of sin. And the king is coming back. I'm sure he's coming back. What am I going to do? This reminds you maybe of Isaiah and his call in Isaiah chapter 6. Where he's in the temple and he beholds the glory of God. And he says, I'm undone. Woe is me. He sees the glory of God and he is broken by it. He realizes that I, I am a sinner. What I have been avoiding, maybe not Isaiah, but these people. What I have been avoiding acknowledging for my whole life that God is holy and I am a sinner. I I now see this. I can't escape this. They realize that they're doomed and that they're going to be condemned for their sin. And they don't make an argument about it. Well, God, we haven't been that bad. I don't really think your law is that good. No, they just cry out. And they actually see the standard for what What would it take for a human to stand before God? What do they say? He's got a pure mouth, pure eyes, pure ears, pure heart. You think about heart, this, this man who would deserve to be saved or would deserve to go to heaven, he's got this pure heart. He despises wicked things. That's the heart. Doesn't want to look at wicked things. Doesn't want to hear them. He doesn't want to say bad things. And so looking at that picture of a really holy person, God's people are like, that's, that's not me. I know I have loved sinful things. I've intentionally looked at sinful things. I've actually intentionally, I've loved to hear of sinful things. And goodness knows I've loved to say sinful things. I've used my mouth to sin against God and against other people. And then they see the reward for a righteous person Verse 16, that righteous person would would dwell in security with God, would live there, not just visit, but live there. That person would have bread and water. This, This idea of God taking care of them forever when the Lord returns. And so they see the holiness of God, right? See God's might. They see their own sin. And they realize that they are undone. This passage really shows us how the law of God is necessary to bring people to Christ. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, it tells us what holiness is. And it is is good because it crushes our hope that sin will be accepted. (laughs) And it also crushes our hope that we are of the sinless group. We're not. And it creates a longing for us, a longing in us, for a sinless king to act on our behalf. 
Dear friends, consider the law of God, his commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You consider these things. His commandment against idolatry and against theft and murder and lying and adultery, sexual sin and and coveting and using the Lord's name in vain. All of these things, every single one of us in this room is condemned by those things. They show us that we are not the man who deserves, we are not the woman who deserves to be received with joy when the king returns. But there is hope because to this people, to this people, he says in verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. You're going to see him in all his beauty. What does that mean? Does it mean that he's a real handsome looking guy? In fact, we know that the Lord Jesus wasn't all that handsome. We saw that in, we see that in in Isaiah. Isaiah is going to later tell us he's not a good looking guy. When we say that he is beautiful, it means that you will, you will see how worthy he is, how righteous he is. You'll see his character and his, his holiness, his love, his grace, his justice, his steadfastness, his perfection, his tender care for his people, and his ferocious, angry protection of them against those who would harm them. You'd see his wisdom. You see his beautiful rule. He's promising this to these people who are themselves sinners. And not only will they see his beauty, they're going to enjoy it. Rather than being destroyed by seeing how wonderful Christ is, the Lord Jesus, the King of Israel, they will enjoy this. We see this in in verse 17. You see this in verse 17. They will you, you will see a land that stretches afar. There will be a pl- you will enjoy it. You will live in a place that is enjoying this. And you're going to remember the time of waiting as a distant memory. There's this promise that right now you're waiting, but, but one day the Lord will return and you will, you will think back on the time when you were waiting before he came and you'll, you'll have a hard time sort of remembering it. Remember, there was a time that the Lord before the Lord came back. And I remember we had pain and, and there was enemies, people trying to harm us and, and there was sickness and there was, there was cancer and there was heart attacks and car accidents and, and there was stock markets crashing and there was crumbling foundations and there was car accidents. I remember all that, but it's, I, can, I can hardly remember it. It's kind of like a, a distant memory. And this is the promise that the Lord gives to his people. You're going to see the king And he will make these things, this suffering, this time of waiting, he'll make this a memory. He'll make it a memory. But now from the king, it turns now to talking to his bride. Did you notice there's a bit of a shift? In verse 17, your eyes will see, will behold the king. Right? And then it moves in verse, uh, it moves in verse 20 now talking about Zion. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. Talking now about his bride. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It's the city of God. It's also called the bride. So basically the citizens of God, his, his bride, his redeemed bride. Talks about the appointed feasts. Talks about the appointed feasts. Well, this is talking about how Jerusalem was the place where you'd enjoy the presence of God. You come to celebrate what he has done to save his people It's untroubled. It's secure. It compares Jerusalem to a tent. A tent with pegs that you can't pull out of the ground and with 
with ropes that are securing this tent that cannot be broken. Can you imagine enjoying something and knowing that it will never be taken from you? Can you imagine that? Well, you, you get a, a new car or a used car that you have your mechanic look out. It looks pretty secure. And you're like, I, this, I will never not enjoy this. There will never be a time where this breaks down. Or maybe you go to the doctor and you get a clean bill of health. That doctor does every single test. <clears throat> and, and you're perfectly healthy. You're fit as a fiddle. <laughs> you, you have a perfect bill of health. And you, remember, and you can imagine thinking, this will always, I will never not have health. This will never degrade. I will never lose my mind. It will never lose my ability to walk. I'll never lose my sight. I'll never lose these things. Or maybe to live in a place where there's peace and security, no war, and think, this will always be this way. This is what it will be like when the Lord returns. Replacing all those things that can be lost or stolen with gifts that can never be lost or stolen because the king has returned. And why is it that it will be like that? Because of the Lord. Because Zion will enjoy what God is. Notice verse 21. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place. The Lord will be for us a place. Notice that? The Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, no, nor majestic ship can pass. The Lord is the best part of Zion, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth. We will enjoy him. Broad streams and rivers. It's going to be refreshing. The Lord himself is refreshing, but yet not very deep, so there's no flooding. <laughs> you can drink it and be cooled by it, but nobody's going to drown in this. River, of course, he's talking poetically. God's not a river, but the enjoyment of him is going to be like these things. Notice also, he's going to be the kind of waterway that you can enjoy this, this, the, uh, the, the life and refreshment that, from God, but, but he's not going to be, no, nobody can get to you with an enemy ship. No ship can pass. No enemy ship of war can pass to attack. You'll be, you'll be safe. No trouble. And why is the Lord this way? He, he tells us why. Why is it that the Lord is so good? Why is it so good? Why is the Lord like this kind of water for us? Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. He's our lawgiver. He's our king. Much controversy in the United States these days about the, the role of the Supreme Court. I'm not going to get very political right now. But you see that part of the controversy is that the, the court doesn't make the law. It's not supposed to make the law, right? The judge doesn't make the law. They just go by what law has already been made. There are lawmakers. There are lawmakers. And those are these elected officials. And the, the question is, what's the relationship between these? In this example, who's the Lord? Which one is he? The, the lawgiver or the judge? Oh, he's both. He makes the law and he also upholds it. This is a beautiful thing, to live in a place where only what God thinks is right happens. Not what other people think is right. We're not doing a vote. What do we think is right? What most people think is right, well, then, of course, minorities are going to be oppressed. No, what God thinks is right, what God loves. This is, this is what is going to be so sweet about heaven, so sweet about the new earth, is that only what pleases the Lord 
Only what he thinks is beautiful and righteous and true and good, only that will be there. And it will be like refreshing because you're just enjoying God's character. That's what his law is, his character. It's expressed in other people, in other human relations. We're just ex- enjoying God. It's, it's this refreshing. He's our lawmaker and he's the judge. He's also the king. He enforces this law. He's going to make sure that it is protected, this place only and always has goodness and righteousness, only enjoying what God says is good because that is what God, what is good. Now, who are there? God's there, obviously. We see this, right? And his king, the Messiah. But there's other people there. Who are the citizens? Who are the citizens of Zion? Who's the bride of the Messiah? The strong? Uh, no, not the strong. Let's, let's continue on here in verse 23. Your cords hang loose. So imagine a ship, a ship with a tall mast, and then it's secured. I'm not a shipbuilder, sorry, Herman, but it's, it's, it's supported by ropes. I don't know what they're called, but they're, the cords are, are holding up this mast and the sails, but they're just hanging loose. And, and, and this mast can't, can't even be held firm in place. The, the sail doesn't really work. So you have this like hobbling ship going through the river to get to Zion. That's a picture of the people who are citizens of Zion. The useless and weak, the helpless, a ship that can't even keep its own sail up. And yet, what's happening? These people are coming to Zion. They're enjoying the presence of God. They're enjoying the rule of God. People who do not deserve it. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided Who's, who's collecting the spoil and the inheritance? The lame. The lame are collecting the, experience, the, uh, the, the prey. We saw this already. That the, the inhabitants of Zion are crying out, we're sinners. How can we stand before a holy God? They start this, this prayer off by saying, be gracious to us. All these things add up to say. But the people who will be citizens of Zion who will rejoice when the Lord God returns will be people who don't deserve it, who could not have done it themselves. They were not righteous. They were not strong. They were not not wiser than other people. And yet they're enjoying something that the king deserves, not what they deserved. So hear ye, hear ye. There will be an undeserved glory when the king returns that will be given to his people. And it will be given to a people who do not deserve it. Hear this and listen. This will happen. But now we come to the second hear ye, hear ye in verses, uh, in chapter 34. Our third point is God's permanent wrath on the nations will, be sa- will satisfy his justice. Let's read chapter 34 <clears throat> in its entirety. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that, do- that fills it, the world <clears throat> and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He's devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as Leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated or satisfied with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. All, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. <clears throat> he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There's no one to call it a kingdom and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles and its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the, the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand, his hand has portioned it to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Thus far God's word. We have a few weddings coming up this year. I would advise none of you to pick this as a wedding text. <laughs> kind of the opposite of the previous text, isn't it? It's another worldwide proclamation, but this time it is of great woe. It's to the people who are hoping and ex they're expecting and hoping that the Lord will not come back. And what do we see here? It is the Lord will come back, and he does come back as a judge for those who have broken his law. It talks about his wrath and his anger. God is angry towards sin. He hates sin as much as he loves holiness. It talks about heaven and earth. Why would it talk about heaven and earth? In verse, in verse 4, you have this sense that he's going to judge the heavens, and, and and what does that mean other than it, it, it's talking about the, the fallen angels? Talking about this rebellion that started with, with Satan and his demons. And he's going, to, he's going to end this and he will give them their punishment for starting a rebellion that has had unfathomable pain and sorrow and destruction. Rebelling against the Lord as king and bringing humans into that rebellion Notice the scroll, the sky being rolled up like a scroll reminds you of a song, doesn't it? We have this picture that all of history is written down. God is the author of history. We see this elsewhere in this passage. He's written it all out. None of it is unknown to him because he is the author. And there will come a day when you get to the end of the scroll, at least the scroll of the time of waiting for these people, when the, the, the angels and uh, the fallen angels and, and also the people who lived in rebellion, where the time is up, and you know what happens, or a scroll is kind of, like, kind of like a coil, right? And then you get to the end of it with your finger, and then it, 
and then, and then you get to the end, and as soon as you let your finger off of it, it, it sort of recoils back. And he's saying, this is, this is what's going to happen. There will be an end to that chapter, essentially to that book. He will come back, and your time is done. In verse 5 to 8, we see that God's wrath and justice will be satisfied. He has this picture of a sword that has an appetite. An appetite for blood. God, God is not a man. He's not driven by emotions. And so it's not like he's just furious and he's just, he just feels angry because of these things. No, God, God is driven by his perfect character and by his holiness. He is a perfect judge who will not be satisfied until every single sin is punished. He's not a judge that can be paid off. He's not a judge that you can just sort of like, if you have a good relationship with him, he'll let you off. What would we call such a judge? We call that a corrupt judge. God is not like that. He, his perfect righteousness, demands that every sin be met by his wrath in hell. And he compares this judgment of the nations to the sacrifice of animals. Israel had a very bloody religion that the Lord gave to them. Lots of sacrifices, 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 sacrifices. And, and this was supposed to teach them two things. One, that this is what your sin deserves. This is what you deserve. But also that God has provided forgiveness for you. Because I'm not doing this to you. I'm providing you a sacrifice. I want you to also notice that it's permanent. This is not a corrective punishment that we see where you you punish somebody so that they would change their ways and then they live in a different direction yeah that happens now but when the lord comes back and that scroll flips back up that punishment that the lord will deliver on the nations on the peoples will not be one of correction it will be permanent and you have this poetic way that he says this is that you're you're just going to be gone off the earth there's no you won't have a second chance you're not coming back to your house that you left who's going to be there hyenas and ostriches and And wolves are going to call back and forth to each other. There's going to be porcupines and hedgehogs there. And they won't be afraid that you're coming back because you're not coming back. There's going to be owls there and they're going to be in pairs. Owls mate for life, I learned. They mate for life and they're monogamous. And so you know that if there's an owl, a mature owl all by him or herself, you know what has happened is that one of them has died. Well, in this poetic imagery of what's going to happen to the, those who are not saved by Christ's grace, there's never going to be an unpaired owl. Why? Because it's so safe there. Because there's no one, nobody's going to kick them out of that house that was left by the person. You also have the illustration of the smoke going up forever. It is permanent. Right now, the the discipline and the action of God in human history on those who love him, on those who hate him. It's not permanent. It can be corrective. Which is why he makes these announcements. He sends these heralds. Hear ye, hear ye, this is happening. Repent, amend your ways now. Turn to the Lord so that when he comes, your judgment will not be one that is permanent. I want you to also see that, that he's calling this for the cause of Zion. Did you see that? 
It is, it is, he calls this judgment, verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. When the Lord comes back to judge the living and the dead, to give punishment to those who sinned against him, how in the world can this be seen as being good for Zion? We've already learned that they're full of sin as well. We've already seen that they're guilty. But why? Why is it that Zion can see this as something that is good? We want the Lord to return. Why? Because Zion is a redeemer, a ransomer. And that brings us, very thankfully, to our last point in chapter 35. Let's read 35 about the redeemer. The redeemer which brings, who brings weak people to himself with great gladness. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like that of the, like, like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with, with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and... Save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on, on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thus far God's word. So you have this picture of pilgrims on a pilgrimage. Where are they going? What city? Zion or Jerusalem. They're entering into Zion and they're never leaving. We're never leaving. We're going to stay there as citizens, permanent residents. I wonder if you notice that this text has bookends, and the bookends are joy and singing. Did you notice that? Verse 1 and 2, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And then in verse 10, at the end, you also have rejoicing and joy and singing. These pilgrims are headed for joy. The joy of the Lord. And then sandwiched in the middle, you have verses 3 to 5, and you have the idea that they need to be strengthened for the journey. We already know why they need to be strengthened for the journey. Why? Because they're pretty weak. They have no reason to believe that they will make it because they're very weak. And yet there is this call to strengthen them, to strengthen weak knees and lift drooping heads to put what is out of place into, into place so that they would be strengthened for that journey. Why do they need strength? We know that they're weak. But what, what, is, the, what is the weakness going to do? Well, 
First of all, there will be temptation to rejoin that rebellion that they've been saved from. Either because of intimidation, you join us or we will make things very hard for you. Or maybe out of counterfeit joy, join us and it will be so much more happier. There's so, it's so much better to be uh, a, a rebel of God rather than to be a child of God. Come join us. And there's this, there's this temptation to get off of that highway to en- the, the enjoyment of being God's people. There's also a temptation to think that we're worthy of Zion. How many people who think they're going to heaven, are, they, they think that because they think they're worthy. And they need to be strengthened in their confidence in Christ and their understanding of their sin. There's also a temptation to think that God will not keep his promises. It's been a while. And so they need to be strengthened. We know that they're weak, right? They are, they are lame, uh, verse uh, 33, 23. They've got weak hands, feeble knees. We see this. They've got anxious hearts. They're worried. They're worried. In verse, um, in verse 5, they're blind, deaf, and mute. In verse 8, how does he describe the people who will be kept strong and God will bring to Zion? Even if they are what? Even if they're fools. So dear friends, you are weak. And you are not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. The people that God brings to Zion, meaning the people that he will bring to himself when he returns, he will welcome them into heaven are not those who are stronger or even smarter here, even the simplest, even the the most basic understanding, even those people will be kept secure because the Lord leads them and they have a redeemer. Did you see that in verses 9 and 10? The redeemed shall walk there. Verse 10, the ransomed. What does that mean, the redeemed and the ransomed? We use those words quite a bit, the redeemed, redemption, redeemer. We use these words. Well, what is a redeemer? A redeemer is somebody who is a relative or a kinsman who is actually legally entitled to stand in your place and do things as if you were doing them. Could make decisions on your behalf. Could, could fulfill obligations on your behalf. Do you remember this picture of the kinsman and redeemer in the, in the book of Ruth? How beautiful is that? You have a ruined family that essentially sold themselves into Moab to say we would rather be with the Moabites having a little bit of food than belong to the Lord's people. And a ruined family, a ruined inheritance. And yet you have this man named Boaz who says, I'll take that all on myself. I will act in that man's place and it will count for him. I will protect and guard his inheritance. And Ruth was this widow who had no hope of any inheritance in the land of Zion, in the land of Israel. And yet because Boaz considered that family as as a family to redeem, he redeemed it instead of her. We also have another picture of a redeemer, a ransomer, in the book of Hosea. Now Hosea was a prophet, a prophet of God, and the Lord told him to marry a woman of ill repute. 
You can use your imagination as to what that means. And he marries her knowing she's going to be unfaithful and they have children. And sure enough, one day she gets tired of faithfulness and she goes and becomes a prostitute. She, in fact, sells herself into this slavery as a prostitute. She leaves him and is unfaithful. And the Lord tells Hosea, go get, go get Gomer. Go. Take your savings. Take your life savings. Take everything that you've got. And I want you to go to that auction block where she's being traded around like chattel. She sold herself as a prostitute. This is the life she chose. And I want you to go and take your money. And I want you to take your whole life. I want you to... I want you to buy her back. Not so that she can be your slave, but to free her. So that she can enjoy freedom and she can be your wife. Enjoying not what she deserves, but enjoying the life that you have earned. The life that you have. And she simply comes not just with assets, not even, she doesn't come with assets, she doesn't even come with a zero sum net worth. She comes with incredible debt and And the Lord says to Hosea, I want you to do that. Make her yours. Redeem her. Ransom her. And dear friends, this is why the Lord Jesus is called our Redeemer. Because the Lord's bride, Zion, is just as sinful as those people who will be condemned when he returns. The only difference is that the Lord's people have a Redeemer. Somebody who took our sin and was damned for us on the cross. Everything that we would receive, all these these, these pictures that tell us what hell will be like, all of those things, he willingly received that for his bride, for Zion, on the cross. He did that so that our debt would be paid. Our sin would be punished. Our guilt and our death would be faced. And then he rose from the dead so that he can be the king who leads us home. And God's people are set apart from those who are not. Not because they are less guilty and not because they are smarter and certainly not because they are stronger. The difference is that they see the king and they see him as beautiful. So I want to ask you this right now. When you see this picture, of course it's a word picture, but when you see this word picture of the coming Lord Jesus, the king, is that interesting to you? Let's get on to the next topic. Maybe it's just disgusting. You're like, I hate that. This is making me very angry. Nothing could be worse than hearing this. Get me out of here. Would he stop talking about the guilt and the punishment and the Redeemer? Or, dear friends, do you see this and you see it as beautiful? That is the only difference. The Bible calls that faith. Where you repent of being an enemy of God and you acknowledge, just like the people of Zion did, we're sinners. We know we're guilty. You know you're guilty. You know you've broken God's law and yet you want God. And the law of God drives you to Christ and you say, thankfully I have a redeemer. You find him beautiful. Dear friends, if you are waiting for him, hoping for him to come and redeem you, you will not be put to shame. He will come. He's kept every single other promise that he has made. 
He did come and he did die and he did rise from the dead and he left tons of eyewitnesses and evidences proving that this was true. He will come again for the redemption of Zion. Are you part of Zion? Are you part of the nations? Those who are expecting him not to come back and, and hoping he won't. Or are you part of his bride, eagerly waiting that he would? Do not be fools and expect him not to come. He will come. He will come. He will come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us as we deserve. We thank you that you sent your son who deserved to be exalted, who dwelt on high, who left that place so he could be dishonored and shamed and receive what we deserve. Thank you that you have given Zion, the people of God, you've given us a good husband, one that is faithful, and one who has redeemed us with his precious blood, who's ransomed us from a slavery that we certainly did deserve and that we have constantly chosen. Lord, I pray if there are people here who do not know you, who have not who've not repented of the hope that you won't return. Lord, I pray they would repent of that hope and have instead a different hope today, a confidence that you will return and that Christ will redeem us because he has already died for our sins and risen from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would do this and strengthen us for the waiting. In Jesus' name, amen.